I've started to spend time, I have a normal devotion time in the morning, which is um, uh, quite a bit of time. And I usually start out by spending some time reading my word, reading the Word, and of course it's the first part of my day, and so it's getting my eyes open, and the first cup of coffee helps a whole lot. Um, but I, I used to just read through, read through sections. And what I've started to do is take smaller, smaller sections and, and go through them very slowly. And I've started this week to go through Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, I, saw, I almost could recite it to you off the top of my head just by how many times I've gone through it. But just because I've gone through it and read it, this is what I want to encourage you about. Just because you've read it, just because you know it, doesn't mean it's deposited in you. Jesus said in John chapter 14, which is another chapter I'm doing that with, he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you wish and it shall be done for you. Well, is what you're asking being done? Well, then maybe his words aren't abiding in you. That doesn't mean you read them. That doesn't mean you memorize them. Reading's good, memorizing's good. But meditation is something very different. It's kind of like this. That, I had a, a nice sandwich at lunch today. And that sandwich tasted good. And right now it's hopefully working in my body to provide energy and nutrients in my body. But if I just ate the word and spit it out, I mean, if I just ate that sandwich and spit it out, I would taste it and I would experience it, but it wouldn't do any good. And so often we wouldn't just read, read the Word, which is good to do. It's as if we're chewing it, like chewing gum, and then when we're done, you know, it's a point where chewing gum loses its flavor, and then you get rid of it. I won't ask you how or where, but I assume you do it the right proper way. Um, and so if you just read the Word, reading's good, but we need to do more than we... Because when you meditate on it, you're chewing on it. And then you're swallowing it. What chewing does is chewing breaks it down so that your stomach and your digestive system can begin to work on it. In fact, the digestion begins in your mouth because when you chew on it, the enzymes in your mouth begin to break it down and separate it out. And as it goes through your digestive system, your body pulls the nutrients out and then gets rid of the part of it that is not beneficial to you. And that's what meditation does. It's taking it into your heart. Because you notice how many times the Bible says believe in your heart and not doubt on your heart. The issue so much isn't in our head it's in our heart. It's we can believe something with our head, but not yet accept it or believe it in our heart. And there's a huge difference when you believe it in your heart. And my experience is I know it when I do. I know it when I do. There's power that comes out of it. So I just felt led to exhort you to that. So if you're dealing with an issue in your life and your faith doesn't seem to be working, try meditating. Just take one scripture. You don't need a lot. One scripture and just chew on it. Meditate on it. Roll it over in your mind. Think about it. Just break it apart. Think about every word. What does this mean? What would it mean if this were really true in my life? How would I apply this in my life? And ask the Holy Spirit to help you. He's in you to reveal things to you, to lead you into all truth. And there's some scriptures that I just, I, I know I've needed at a deeper level in my heart. And I'm sharing with you because I'm happy. It's exciting. It's been happening. And my wife came in partway through the morning and I was over in my study, just nice and quiet, just going through a couple of scriptures. And I'm, I got so excited because things I've taught for years, suddenly I saw, I, I found a scripture in here I didn't even know was in here. And it's, it's a section I could quote to you, but I suddenly saw it. And that's what's called illumination. It's when the light don't goes on, it's like... Wow, that's the Spirit of God shining that light. Well, He's trying to show you something. And one of the things is to show you He's real and He's alive in you. And He wants to lead you into all truth and empower you. The second thing I want to share with you is that, just by my, is that He's the power of the church. 
This is what the church lacks today. We've got programs, we've got ideas, we've got teachings, but it's the power of the Holy Spirit. This scripture that's been rolling around in me for a year now, Paul said, I did not come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom. And that's a teacher that could have done that. But I've determined to come to you in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit. The demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit demonstrating that God's real. He's tangible. He's really here. And He's powerful. He's not weak. He's an almighty God. And I don't care what it is you're dealing with tonight, what you're bound up by, what the disease is. God is all-powerful, waiting to demonstrate Himself and show His power on our behalf. He doesn't need it on His behalf. He needs to show, wants to show it on our behalf. And in, Matthew, in, John, uh, in uh, John chapter 7, I think it's around verse 38, Jesus says, Out of you shall flow rivers of living water, talking about the power of the Holy Spirit flowing out of the church. And he says there, referring to the Holy Spirit to whom you've not yet received because you can't receive Him until I've gone to the Father. Well, I've got good news tonight. He's already gone to the Father, so we've received Him. Praise God. We're going to talk a little bit about that a little later tonight. Okay, let's get on with this. I just really felt impressed to share that with you tonight. Let's read down through here. We're talking about spiritual warfare, and we'll talk, pick up at verse 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the deceits of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And I think we're in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded around your waist truth, having put on your breastplate righteousness, put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shot or put on your feet the preparation, the foundation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication of the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And I'm not going to go back over all these pieces of armor, but we've talked about them. It's really putting on different attributes of God, different parts of God's character that has been put into us when you were born again. When you were born again, God took your old nature out, put His nature in you. That's how you became a child of God. Although we have His nature in us, we don't wear it very often. We don't act like it. That's why Paul says in several places, put on Christ. He didn't say go find Him, put Him on. It's like putting on your suit or your clothes or your dress or whatever it is you wear. You can only put on something you have, but you have to choose to exercise that, to put it on. And we can choose to put Christ on His quality, His character, by looking on the inside and relying on Him to produce that in you. And that's one of the roles or responsibilities of the Holy Spirit. So this truth, righteousness, peace, uh, uh, um, salvation, all those are aspects of God's character that are in you right now. And Paul is just saying in this spiritual warfare, put those on. And when you put those on, God's your defense. God is, because we're talking about a spiritual battle. We're talking about a spiritual battle. And then we looked in verse 17 and we looked at the offensive, one of the offensive weapons we have here is the Word of God and it's the sword of the Spirit. We talked about when you speak the Word, you are literally putting, arm, you're putting swords in the hands of angels to go out and fight this battle where this battle is to be fought. Because look back at verse 12 
It says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age, of spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Our, this warfare that we're fighting is a war that's going on in a realm that you and I can't see with our eyes, hear with our ears, touch with our hands, or taste with our mouth. Your five senses cannot detect what's going on in that battlefield. But it's very real, and it's affecting you. It affects the church. It affects people. It can affect them with sickness and disease. It can affect all kinds of things in our life and around us. And you are being influenced by it, whether you realize or not. And, and what this is teaching us is to be aware that there is a spiritual battle going on in the spiritual realm. And we are not defenseless in this. Not only are we def- do, do we have the defenses of God, the armor of God, but we have weapons that God has given to us. So the Word of God coming out of our mouth is a very powerful weapon, and we spent one night talking about that. Then last Wednesday, we began to look at the other part of this. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer. We looked last week, and what that says is praying always does not mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It means in all situations, in every opportunity, whatever you run into, Pray. Whenever you run into pray, I had a series of situations, and it happens as a pastor, where you get a series of bad reports one after another. So I came in here, and I did what that said. I just started praying. I just started opening my heart before God. Instead of trying to handle situations in my own strength or react emotionally, I turned to the one who is my resource. I turned to the one who knows what to do. I turned to the one who is my source of strength. I turned to the one who can do something about these situations because in my strength, I can't. With my wisdom, I can't. With my power, I can't do it. But I know one who can, and I'm joined to him, and he's ready to do something. And so it says that in all situations is what that means. In every opportunity, in every situation, pray in this situation. And when that's often, what we do last is pray. But praying always with all prayer, that's all different manner of prayer, whatever happens to be appropriate to the situation, and I'm not going to take the time to go back over the different types of prayer. But we are going to talk about at least two of them. And supplication, and this is what we ended up talking about last night, in the Spirit. Those three little words are tacked in there, but they're so important. And what we looked at last time is praying in the Spirit. Why? Because that's where the battle is. The battle is in the Spirit, and prayer in the Spirit is one of those weapons. So what we ended up talking about last time is praying in the Spirit, and we're going to look at what that means. We looked at why that's important, and the reason it's important is because we are fighting a spiritual warfare. So let's go over to Romans chapter 8, because that's where we were last time. And we didn't quite finish it. Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. And I mentioned to you last time, I went back and did a quick summary of the first 25 verses, and it really is all about how the Spirit of God has been given to us to make up for our infirmities what we can't do. He is in us. He is the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has set us free, verse 2, from the law of sin and death. So He brings God's life into us to do in us what our flesh could not do under the law. And now He says, likewise... In the same way, in other words, the Spirit helps another weakness we have. And what is that weakness? It says here in verse 26, For the Spirit helps our weakness, which that word weakness in the Greek means just an infirmity, an inability to produce results. Ever feel like you couldn't produce any results? Ever feel helpless? 
You're facing this horrible situation and your heart and your compassion was to read out and do, reach out and do something and you just feel within yourself, I, there's nothing I can do here. I'm, I'm utterly helpless. That's what the Spirit's been given to us to help us with. When you feel utterly helpless, that's when He's ready to step in. But so often we don't turn to Him. We try to handle it ourselves or we call somebody else to help us instead of calling on the one who God has given us to help us. For the Spirit Himself, the Spirit Himself helps our weakness. Now we looked at the word help last time in Greek is made up of three different words which means to take hold together with against. To take hold together, soon which is together, lambano which means to take hold, and anti, which means against. To take hold together wins against the situation that you feel weak about. Whatever that situation that you feel helpless about, that you just are not adequate to handle, whatever it is you're facing with that, He is in you to take hold together with you against that situation. And we use the example of, of how getting a, 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 your car runs out of gas and you're, you're just down the street from a, a gas station and you get out and you're, it's nighttime and you're trying to push the car and you just can't get it rolling. And somebody pulls over behind you and gets out of the car. These two big strong guys get out of the car and they take hold together with that bumper with you against that force of that car and they begin to give the power where you didn't have the power. They don't do it for you, but they take hold together with you. So... In this prayer, we have to pray. The Spirit of God is not going to pray for us. He will take hold together with you against that situation in the spirit realm because He brings into that situation spiritual power and spiritual force that you don't have in your own being. And so often what we do, and this is what we're all guilty of this, I assume, you know I am. We get an emotional, we see a situation and if it, it either doesn't touch us at all so we pray out of our mind because we think we ought to pray or it really moves us and we pray out of our emotion. God, do something about this. Why? Because I'm upset about it and there's no power in that. There's no power in your emotion. There's no power even in what you want. The power is in what God wants done. And we often pray too quickly about situations. We just see a situation and we feel, let's get together and let's do something about it now without finding out what God wants to do. God, what do you want to do here? Because you know you may actually be praying against God's will. Because we're substituting our judgment for God's judgment. Now, there are certain situations where it's obvious what God, God wants people saved. And God wants people healed, but sometimes there's a situation you don't know that's interfering. I mean, this person may be in outright disobedience. They may be out from underneath God's protection, and we're trying to pray for them for something that God's saying, wait a minute, I don't want to, I want to keep them there for just a while until they wake up and realize where they are. So the Spirit won't take hold together with you against that. Because ah, look at this. Read the next verse. Now, he who searches the hearts, that's God, the Father, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, not according to my will and not according to your will. Now, you can take this and push it to extreme and at the end of every prayer say, Father, if it be Thy will. There's some things we just know are God's will because they're written in the book. All right? But there are sometimes there are situations involved where you don't know. And so if you don't see results right away, we need to ask some questions. Lord, direct me in my prayer. 
But see, the reason often we have trouble doing that is because we haven't learned to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. We just see him as some kind of force out there that's supposed to come on and help us when we get in trouble or we're praying for somebody else instead of cooperating with him. But if you read the first 10, 12 chapters of the, of the book of Acts, you find out that they didn't ask the Holy Spirit to help them to do what they wanted. Their whole prayer was to find out what the Holy Spirit was doing and follow what he was doing. And this, I think, is a large part why the church today doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit the way they had it back there, had him in their, in their church back then, because back in those days, they didn't know any better. They didn't have theological institutions to go to. They didn't have 300 commentaries in their library to look up and see what somebody's opinion is of what it meant. They had nowhere to turn except to the Holy Ghost. And as a result, they depended upon him. And maybe we've gotten too sophisticated too educated and too other dated that we don't need him enough. And maybe he's just waiting for us to need him more. You go into third world countries where they don't have all the resources that we have and they know they need him. They know they need him. They know they need him. All right. Well, we need him too. So what we're looking at is, is what it means to pray in the Spirit. It, well, it clearly means to pray in, a, in the realm of the Spirit where the battle's going on. But we see here that the Holy Spirit's been given to us, and if you're a Christian, He lives in you. That's how you were born again. He's been given to us to come alongside of us and help us pray the perfect will of God. Now, how does He do that? How does He do that? He helps our weaknesses. He intercedes we look at last week, that means it takes up somebody's cause, takes up their case and argues their case. He makes intercessions with the saints according to the will of God. We know the... Uh, excuse me, verse 26. For we do not know what... Our weakness is this, for we do not know what we should pray for. Literally in the Greek it says, we don't know the what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. We'll talk about that in a minute. The Spirit makes intercessions because our weakness is because we cannot see into that spirit realm. We don't know what the real issue is. As I mentioned last week, if you look through the Gospels when Jesus healed people, sometimes He cast out demons. Sometimes He told them to do something. Sometimes He laid hands on them. He, he dealt with that sickness or disease differently based on what the Spirit inside of Him directed Him to do because the Spirit inside of Him knew what the problem was, knew what the issue is. And it's, it's that in order to be led by the Spirit requires some effort, requires some patience. It requires some relationship with Him. It requires time spent with Him. And we're awfully busy. We don't have time to spend with Him. And yet that's often so much where we're missing it. And I'm talking to me as much as I am to all the rest of us. We don't know the what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us. So He makes up that gap when we don't know what to pray. With groanings which cannot be uttered. Now what in the world is that referring to? Well, it depends on which commentary you pick up. <laughs> for whatever commentary you pick up, you'll get some man's in interpretation, which they're absolutely certain about, about what it means. I'll tell you this much, because I'll tell you when the Bible says something, and I'll tell you there's situations where there are different ways to interpret it, and this is one of them. 
but that doesn't matter. Let's go back and look at this word groanings for a minute because it, look at it in verse... Um, oh, let's go back. In Romans 8, you can just keep going back. Um, well, let's go back to verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So the spirit that was given to you is a spirit that, that, that makes you God's son. It's the spirit by which you were adopted into God's family as God's child. So we've not been given a spirit that leads us into bondage and fear, but a spirit that leads us into adoption, into a relationship with God as His child and God as His Father, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Abba in Aramaic literally means Daddy. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs and joint heirs with and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified with Him. Now, this suffering is not sickness and disease. He's going to explain to you what the suffering is. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. So He's looking forward to the day when we receive a glorified body. And he's talking about the suffering that we're going through, which is the suffering of being, having, being a child of God in this body of flesh. Does your body ever give you trouble? Does it ever want something you know you shouldn't have? Does it ever want to not do something you know you should do? In fact, it's the only source of trouble you have. And if the devil is able to get access to you, it's through your body. It's through the temptations. We talked about that on Sunday. It's through the desires of your flesh. That's what gets us in trouble. It's our emotion. Well, I don't feel this way. I don't, that's all coming from your senses. And because we are not, have not learned to rule our senses, our senses rule us. And so Paul had to deal with the same thing. So the struggle he's talking about, the suffering he's talking about, is what, it, what the suffering, what it means to be a righteous child of God, of a holy God, with a Holy Spirit in you, living in a world full of sin and exposed to it through flesh that still likes to sin. So here we are, representatives of the kingdom of God, wanting to do what's right. If you read Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14, Paul says the things, I want to do what's right, but I don't do it. And I don't want to do what's wrong. But every time I don't want to do what's wrong, I end up doing what's wrong. And he recognizes what the problem is. The problem isn't the me inside. The problem is this flesh I'm living with. Anybody able to relate to that? Or are you all so holy you've gotten past that? Okay, all right. So the struggle he's talking about here is the struggle, the suffering of dealing with this thing. Not just this flesh, but a world out there that's also fallen, that's also, and it's, it's worse now today than it was in Paul's day. All right, that's what he's talking about. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. So there's a glory in us that's going to be revealed someday. He says, I know it's in there. You can't see it out there, but it's going to be revealed someday, and that's my hope. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So nature itself is waiting for this revealing of God's glory in this earth. For the creation was subject, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That's the curse. When God made this earth, it was beautiful. It, there was no struggle in it. 
He gave Adam and Eve the responsibility to watch over it, to maintain it, to, 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 to monitor it, to, to, to reap the harvest. And the Bible says they didn't even have to water it. There was a mist that rose up every morning and settled over the vegetation, and it watered it. And there were no weeds. So Adam was given a responsibility, and all of nature cooperated with him. It didn't fight him. It was easy. He just had to walk out among it and pick the ripe cherries off the tree and just cultivate it. But it wasn't fighting him. But if you read in Genesis 3, when the curse is issued, now he says, with toil, with the sweat of your brow, you're still going to have the same responsibility, but now the world, the, the natural things are going to fight you. They're going to decay, so you've got to keep them alive. They're going to work against you. Weeds are going to come up. Sin's been released in this world, and it's going to begin to decay it and pervert it. And back in then, to show you how powerful that pure righteousness and holy witness was, it says in the Bible, God said to Adam, if, if, you, if you eat of this fruit that I tell you not to eat it, literally in the Hebrew it says, in dying you will die. So it talks about two deaths. The first death was a spiritual death, which is separation from Eden, separation from the presence of God. That took place the moment they sinned. The second death that he was talking about was the death of his body, and it took 900 years to happen. It took 900 years for sin to catch up and, and with his body. That's how powerful the life that was in him was once the plug was pulled. But we live thousands of, genera- thousands of, years, thousands of years later, and sin has got a, a momentum to it. And we're not walking in that same level of life. It's in us, but we're not walking in it because we're not used to it. We're still too much influenced by the world that's around us. So you and I were born again, born of God's nature, born with God's desires and tendencies done in our spirit, fighting against a world that's fallen and has a God of that world who hates our God and wants to see us destroyed at every turn living in a body that wants to cooperate with him and do what it wants to do. And so there's a fight that goes in us, on in us every day to fight against this body, to fight against this pressure. And you get to the point sometimes if you've been doing it for a while, I just went out of here. I just, just, uh, you know, I just want, and you can see the Apostle Paul was at that place in Philippians chapter 2. He says, I'm betwixt and betwixt. I don't know whether to stay or go. And you almost have the impression that was not just some, you know, abstract thought he was having, but he was facing the real opportunity to leave here. He says, for my personal welfare, it's better that I go, because to be out of this, out of this body, I'm present with the Lord. But it's better for your sake that I stay. We need to have that attitude towards life. I talked about it Sunday, and it's come back to me again today. This life on this earth is your assignment. It's not your life. Don't hang on to it so dearly. It's your, it's your assignment here. And when it's over, you get promoted. So don't be afraid of death. Death is not the end. Death is not failure. Death is promotion. It's retirement. And the retirement benefits are out of this world. <laughs> That's what Paul's talking about. 
the glory that's awaiting. And now he's saying here, all of creation is waiting for Christ to come back and establish his kingdom here and reestablish the glory of God and reestablish and get rid of this curse that it's under. That's what he's talking about. And now look what he says. Verse 21. Because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. But we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So he's saying here, the earth that we're in right now is in a groaning process, and you can almost hear it. Earthquakes. Horrible winters. (laughs) Nature fights us. And it's almost as if it's angry. And it's a groaning. The earth is a groaning under the weight of sin. And, and, and the world can't hear that, but we as Christians ought to be able to hear it because we have a different voice inside. We have a different voice inside speaking to us than the different sound of the voice in the world. All of creation groans. So there's a groaning under the weight of the sin. There's a groaning under the weight of, 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 the, of Satan, the god of this world. There's a groaning under the weight of the curse. For we... We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, waiting for the birth. You ladies that have had a child, you know what that's like. That groaning that you go through, the, the, the labor pain, the labor agony of the process of giving birth. Not only that, verse 23, but we also have the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So the groanings that he's talking about here, because they build on each other, there's the groaning of nature. And it's a groaning against the evil. It's a groaning against the oppression. It's a groaning against the curse that's on it and the weight and the heaviness and the evil that's just consuming it and perverting it. And the earth is groaning because the earth was made by God and it's good. God said it when He made it. It's good, but it's being, it's being perverted and it's being weighed down with the filth of this world and of the God of this world. But not just that. Our flesh is. We're in this world. And Paul says, we have the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Bible also, it says, calls Him in Ephesians, in Ephesians it calls Him the down payment, the deposit, the earnest. What is that? That's, a, that's, a, that's a, the initial payment towards something so that you know it's real if you're selling a house the first thing that a realtor will ask for is a down payment to show that you're serious it shows you're going to pay the rest of the money because you've given 10% now or whatever it is and that deposit is held on to as tangible evidence that you're going to come through with the rest of it well there's an inheritance that we have and that's what Paul's talking about it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that's awaiting That's the fullness of it. That's the rest of the purchase price of my redemption. But I've been given a deposit, a taste of it. But it's very real, and it's the Holy Spirit in me. And He is in me, working in me. He's a taste of that glory. So I've got a taste of the glory in me while I'm living in this perverted, fallen world. And so there's a groaning that goes on inside of us. And the fact that more of us aren't groaning is because we're too much aware of the world out there and not enough aware of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And as we learn to turn inward and become sensitive to Him in us, 
we'll begin to feel that groaning that I, I just want to be here. But we're here on an assignment. We've been dropped behind enemy lines in the mud and the muck and the mire to do our assignment. We're, 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 the, we're the elite core that's been dropped in the mud, dropped in the snow and the ice, in, foreign, in a foreign atmosphere to infiltrate the enemy and carry out the general's plans for the invasion. And that's what he's talking about here. So there's a groaning in creation. There's a, the spirit inside of us is groaning to be in this situation because we've faced with all of this and all the opposition and all the frustration. So there's a groaning in us against the weight of sin. And that's what it is. And so in the same way when we're praying against spiritual things, that spirit is going to groan also against those. Now there are some people that teach, and it may well be true, that that groaning is, is praying in tongues. And it may be, because we're going to look at scriptures that would support that. But I believe whether it's tongues or it's not tongues, it doesn't matter because what it tells us is the Spirit's interceding for us. The bottom line is He's helping us. Don't get hung up on whether this is praying in tongues or not. He's there to help you. Groaning with groanings that cannot be uttered. Actually, in the Greek, it says with inarticulate which either means you can't hear it or it means you can hear it, but you can't understand it. But either way, He's interceding for you. And the next verse says, He who searches the hearts, that's the Father. That's who we're praying to, isn't it? He who searches the hearts hears what the Spirit's praying because the Spirit prays according to the will of God. So there's a perfect communication system that God has given us. Wouldn't, wouldn't we think God would do something like that? I mean, this is, if this is crucial warfare, if God's given us, knows that He's dropped us behind enemy lines to fight and win the battle, not just survive, wouldn't He give us weapons that are designed to defeat the enemy? Well, this is a perfect method of communication. But I want to talk now for a little bit and show you some scriptures about other scriptures about praying in the Spirit, and they're connected with praying in tongues. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now this is in a series of chapters, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, where the Apostle Paul is talking about gifts of the Spirit. Charisma, they're called in Greek, which is where the term charismatic comes from. And the gifts of the Spirit are very real, they're very important. And he lists those in chapter 12 because in the church at Corinth, they were being abused. They were, very, they were spiritually proud people because the gifts were operating very proficiently, apparently, but they weren't operating in love. So Paul is writing this whole section of scriptures, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14, to correct their abuses, not to teach and instruct on the gifts of the Spirit, but we can learn something from his correction. And so in chapter 12, his message basically is, although there are different gifts, and he lists nine of them there, there's one Spirit. Although there's different gifts and they manifest in different ways, there's one Lord. Although they're different gifts and they're administered differently, there's one body. So they're all to be functioning for one purpose, not yours, not mine, 
but his purpose because it's the body of Christ. And then he goes on in the rest of that chapter talking about although we have different gifts, it's one body. Although we have different functions, it's still one body, just like your physical body has different parts that have different functions, but they work together for the purpose of your body and the will of your mind and your head and your heart to carry out what your body wants to do. And that's what chapter 12 basically says. Chapter 13 talks about the heart issue because he starts out by saying, you know, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels that I have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have faith as to move mountains, if I give my body to be... He's referring back to different gifts of the Spirit. What he's saying, if I, if I operate in those with such power that in God's eyes, ears, they sound like the voices of angels, that if my gift of faith is so powerful it moves mountains, and if I've surrendered myself, it's like my, if my body should be a burned sacrifice. He said, but it's not motivated by love in God's eyes. It may be impressive in the church, I mean, the church may be packed and they may be hanging from the ceilings and the music may be cranking and it's water, but in God's eyes, it's nothing if it's not motivated by love. So chapter 13 deals with the heart issue. And that's so easy to get off in that because the gifts of the Spirit are visible. So we see somebody operating and prophesying or, 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 or willing words of knowledge and we get very impressed with that and we confuse the gift with the person and think just because God, they're operating in that gift means that they're a very spiritual person. It just means they're open. But remember the wonderful story about Peter who in one section of scriptures, Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood didn't tell you that, but my Father's in heaven. In other words, you heard from God, boy. And that Peter gets full of himself. And Jesus goes on to say, and I've got to go to Jerusalem to die. And Peter rebukes him. And now Jesus turns and says, get behind me, Satan. So the same openness that Peter had to hear the voice of God telling him who Jesus is, was just as open to hear the voice of Satan to tell him to stop Jesus from going to the cross. Peter couldn't discern which voice was virch because he was just open, but he wasn't mature. And love is what will mature you because love is God's character. It's God's nature. And so to operate in anything apart from love is not operating in God. In fact, in John chapter... Uh, 15, 14 and 15, he says, if, 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 you, if you keep my commandments, then you abide in me. If you walk in love towards one another, then you abide in me. So to abide in him means to walk in love because that's what he is. You can't abide in him and not walk in love because he is love. Any, any more than you can take a shower and not get wet. You can't separate the wet from the water because water is wet by nature and God is love by nature so you can't separate the love out of God so if you're not if we're not going motivated by love his kind of love then it counts nothing in God's eyes that's 13 14 now deals with specific application of the most common of the gifts of the spirit and those refer to the gift of tongues the gift of interpretation and the gift of prophecy now, in order to understand what we're going to read, and we may not get finished with this tonight, in order to understand what we're going to read, you've got to understand, this is where some people get confused. 
Paul is talking about tongues in two different settings. He's talking about tongues in one setting in the operation of a church service, such as this service or a Sunday service or any gathering, which is where these gifts will operate sometimes. Because he's referring here to this gift in, the, in terms of its purpose, which is to bring edification or instruction or information or encouragement to the body. But then there's a private use of it, which is very different. And where people get confused about, with tongues often is they un, don't understand those two different applications. So with that background, let's go through this a little bit. Chapter 14. Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. We're not going to get on these gifts and talk about them. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, however, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. So the first thing we see, that speaking in tongues is a private communication between you and God. It's a private communication between you and God. It's your spirit, motivated by the Holy Spirit, speaking spiritual words into the spiritual atmosphere. And so he says about it that it's not empty, but you're speaking mysteries to God. But we don't understand what we're speaking. And that's one of the areas where we struggle. And this is where I struggled when I first was saved and got filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I didn't struggle with getting filled with the Holy Spirit. I struggled with speaking in tongues. I mean, I struggled with it. I gagged, coughed, spit, choked, had people lay hands on me, spit over me, rub my head, waited, tarried. I did everything I could think of to make it happen until I just got frustrated and desperate and I let everybody go home and I sat on my living room couch about one in the morning and I said, God, what's up? And you know, you, you get serious with God, He'll answer you. He says, the problem's in your head. Still is. He said, the problem is this. The words are trying to come up in there, but your mind is able to sense what's coming up. And he says, you have an image of yourself. You're a State Street lawyer. Back then, it was fashionable for lawyers to wear three-piece suits. I had nice three-piece suits, leather briefcase, nice office. I had all the, all the, the stuff that goes with being a lawyer, talked like a lawyer, thought like a lawyer, dressed like a lawyer. I guess I was a lawyer. <clears throat> Not really. And I had an image of myself. And what the Lord showed me, he says, as those words start to bubble up in you, it sounds like gibberish or baby talk, and that does not fit the image you have of yourself. And so you're choking them back down. He says, you're not even aware you're doing it because, because you, have, you, you, you want to sound intelligent. I was raised in a family where we corrected each other. Our, our, our family dinner conversation was correcting each other's grammar. Doesn't that sound like fun? And my mother was the best at it. I can still hear her voice. You just split an infinitive. There are certain words that I can't, I couldn't, you know, to say them, and they're not swear words, but to me they are, and it's to, it's to use an adverb instead of an adjective, or to confuse further and farther. 
There's a difference, you know. And so that's so ingrained in me that anything that doesn't come out sounding articulate, educated, precise, chokes right here. And the things of God come out by, are by faith, not by intelligence. And I said, all right, what do I do? And God, he, he said, how did you get saved? I said, I simply believed the promise of your word that says, if I ask you, you'd come into my life. He said, you receive everything from me that way, including the gift of tongues. I said, you mean I can do it now? He says, go ahead, boy. And I opened my mouth, and an hour and a half later, I'm still flowing, and I'm having the time of my life, going, jumping around that living room. And all of a sudden, it's now 1.30 in the morning. I'm like, can I stop? Am I going to do this the rest of my life? I mean, it was just flowing, flowing, and flowing, and flowing. And then I remembered what it says in Acts chapter 2, and they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. So I decided to try stopping. It took me a moment, but I could stop because there was a real flow going. And now I'm thinking, uh-oh, can I start again? I opened my mouth and it was right there. And my point is this. I don't know what the point was. <laughs> I, had a, I was going to talk about that later on. What was my point? Oh, okay. It doesn't make... It's not... It, 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 is not understandable to our natural mind. And most of us don't like that. You've got to understand, and we learn this in renewing the mind. Your mind is used to being in control. I mean, you may not think it's in control of you, but it is. In most of us, our mind is in control of us. We're not in control of our mind. Those of you who are here when we study renewing the mind, one of the first revelations to realize you're not your mind. Your mind is something God gave you for you to use. But in most cases, our mind and our senses rule us. And so it's important sometimes when something happens to be able to commune with God and exclude your mind from the conversation. Because there are times you'll run into a situation and your mind is still not renewed enough. It's going to try to pull you the wrong way and you need to be able to talk to God apart from your mind. And that's why your mind doesn't like it, because your mind is jealous. It wants to be involved in everything. It wants to be involved in every conversation. It wants to have it put its two cents in, and sometimes that's about all it's worth. It wants to add its comments. It's like, yeah, but what about so-and-so? What about this? And what about this? And there's sometimes your spirit man just needs to talk to God, and your mind needs to be put on hold somewhere, and it does not like that, which is why it will fight with you, argue with you. When I first would do that, I'd pray in tongues, my mind would start things like that. That's just gibberish. That's just talk. What if somebody heard you say that? All this stuff was in my mind, and I realized this is trying to discourage me from praying in tongues. But I knew every time I prayed in tongues, I felt better. Every time I prayed in tongues, I felt stronger. I felt bigger. I was charging myself up. In fact, we'll look later on in Jude 20. It says, build yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. It's a way to charge your spirit up. It's a way to become sensitive and conscious of the spirit man that's in you because your mind will freak out. Yes. What's going on? What are you talking about? So we will try to talk you out of doing it. 
Whatever way your mind works. With mine, it's like, well, that's just baby talk. That's not making any sense. What if somebody in your law firm heard you doing this? What, and I didn't care at that point. I was having too much fun. But afterwards, the next morning, you wake up and you may feel, I was foolish. And your mind during the night has gained ascendancy again. And saying, no, 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 no. Or then, that was a one-time experience. All, your mind will try to talk you out of the blessings of God until your mind has been renewed and your mind will not be renewed apart from your spirit guiding it and directing it. Because when you, when, you, when you become in contact with the Holy Spirit inside of you, He's more real to you than your mind. And that you can come to that place where you're more alive and conscious on the spirit man inside of you than you are the world that surrounds you. And most of us have a long way to go before we get there. But you can begin the journey tonight. The journey's worth the effort, even if you never get fully to that place. You does not stay where you are is progress. So the Spirit himself, the Spirit, when we pray, we're praying mysteries to God. Let's go on to the next part of this. Because in the... No, let's go back. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. So when you're praying in the Spirit, you are speaking into the Spirit realm mysteries, not to the spirits, but to your mind. Okay. Then he goes on and talks. He compares it. What he's doing in here is he's comparing it to to prophecy, and he's saying in a church service, prophecy is more valuable. Why? Because people can understand what's being said, and it edifies their mind, because if I speak in tongues, I'm not edifying anybody's mind. But if I prophesy in a church group, then that's the Spirit of God inspiring me to speak something and people can understand what that is and they can go, well, you know what, that was God talking to me. I needed to hear that. But if I stand up here speaking in tongues, you don't walk away. You may, it may stir you up, but you don't walk away with more information. So he's talking now about the context, context of a church service. I didn't mean to get into all this, but... Verse 40, verse 40, verse 4. But he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself or builds up himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So this is what was happening to me. This is what happens to me when I, I get into this today. And I was just, you know, dealing with some thoughts, dealing with some issues, and I just started walking back and forth, praying in the Spirit. And it wasn't very long before I'm getting strengthened. I'm getting charged up on the inside. Why? That's making me much more aware of the Holy Spirit. I'm using Him. I'm exercising the Spirit inside. I'm speaking out words, spiritual words, and it's charging me up. It's making me more aware. It's like, you remember those, those little cars? Sometimes we would have a kids. I didn't think I even had some of these. Where, you, you know, it had four wheels, and, and there was like a spring or something in the back. You go, you know what I'm talking about? And then you set it down and it goes, shoom, it takes off like that. You know that's what I'm talking about? It's like that. When you're praying in the Spirit, you're going, you know, and as a boy, you do want to get it. How tight can I get this thing going? Because it's going to go right through that door and break a window, you know. And it's like you, you get charged up. Why? Because your spirit man's communing with God outside of your mind. And remember what Paul said in Romans 8, the Spirit takes hold together with us against the infirmity because our mind doesn't know what the issue is to pray. 
But when we pray in the Spirit, when we pray in tongues, it bypasses that problem because my spirit is now communing directly with God and God knows what the heart of that spirit is. So there's this perfect communication line back and forth and your mind freaks out because there's no clue what this is all about. Let's go over to um, verse 14. What he's talked about in between now is how to handle situations in a church service. And basically what he's saying here is it doesn't do any good for... It doesn't edify people for somebody to speak a word out in tongues if no one then stands up and gives an interpretation because the interpretation is the Spirit communicating what that private language was in language that can be understood by people. Now Paul talks about his own experience. Verse 14. If I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, but I will also pray with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit. I will also sing with the understanding. And then he goes on and talks about the, how that's received in his service. So the point here that Paul is saying here is when I pray in a tongue, it's my spirit praying to God. Mysteries to my mind, but my spirit is praying. So going back to what we're talking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps our infirmity because we don't know what to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that, that cannot be uttered. So the Spirit intercedes for us. He prays for us. Romans, Ephesians 6, 18 says, Praying at all manner of prayer in the Spirit, effective in the Spirit realm. Whether that has to be in tongues or not, I don't know. But what I do know is tongues does do that. Tongues we now see from 1 Corinthians 14. Tongue is my tongues or my spirit praying directly to God. Things that are mysteries to me, mysteries to you if you hear them, but they're not mysteries to God and they're not mysteries to the spiritual forces and spiritual forces of wickedness. They're not mysteries to angelic forces out there. They're accomplishing great and mighty things, which is why the devil opposes it so much. That's why the devil opposes it so much. Praying in the Spirit. 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 And Jude 20 says, is that build yourself up on your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost. It strengthens you. It energizes you. It edifies you.